Hello everyone, my name is Ethan, and on this podcast I'm going to talk about the recognition and management of sepsis. First, however, we need to know what sepsis is. Sepsis is defined as life-threatening organ dysfunction due to a dysregulated immune response to infection. It is a common condition in hospitalized patients and is associated with high mortality, ranging from around 10% for sepsis without shock to as high as 40-50% to for patients with septic shock. Conservative estimates also suggest that sepsis accounts for 20% of all global deaths. Sepsis can be difficult to recognize as it has no established biomarkers, but rather presents as a heterogeneous syndrome of nonspecific vital sign and organ function abnormalities. There are several screening tools used to recognize sepsis, with the most commonly used being SIRS and QSOFA. While these tools are more useful at a population level than for an individual patient, they do provide frameworks for thinking about the vital sign derangements commonly seen in sepsis. There are four SIRS criteria, which are temperature greater than 100.4 or less than 96.8, tachycardia, meaning a heart rate greater than 90 beats per minute, tachypnea, which in this case is a respiratory rate greater than 20 per minute, and a white blood cell count greater than 11 or less than 4. There are three components of QSOFA, which are hypotension, meaning a systolic blood pressure of less than 100, tachypnea, in this case meaning a respiratory rate greater than 22 per minute, and altered mental status. Any patient displaying these signs, especially one with a reasonable or high suspicion for infection, should be quickly evaluated to determine if their condition is due to sepsis. Once sepsis is identified, management can be thought of in six categories. Source identification and control, antibiotics, fluids, vasopressors, organ support, and steroids. Epic does have an adult sepsis order set that can guide you through ordering many of the things we'll talk about next. The first category of management is source identification and control. The most common sources of infection are pulmonary, urinary, and bloodstream infections. All patients with suspected sepsis should get two sets of blood cultures from different sites, a chest x-ray, a urinalysis with a urine micro, and a urine culture. If the patient is producing sputum and has respiratory symptoms, you should get a sputum culture. While it is standard practice in our hospitals and residency program to send blood cultures for any inpatient with suspected sepsis, This practice doesn't actually have much evidence to support it in the absence of prior positive blood cultures, suspicion for bacteremia, or suspicion for endocarditis in a patient that is not already on antibiotics. Nevertheless, obtaining blood cultures in a patient with new suspected sepsis remains the norm in our health system. You should check a protacetonin for now and for next AM labs via the Procal order set. We'll talk more about this later. While sepsis is less commonly due to non-COVID viral infections, a full RVP should still be sent if respiratory signs and fever are the main complaints. Ideally, all cultures are drawn prior to receiving antibiotics, but don't delay your antibiotics in a sick patient if the workup is taking a long time. In addition, you should send a CBC, CMP, COAGS, and any other relevant lab to look for end-organ dysfunction. If no source is identified and the patient is stable enough to go to CT, then a scan of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis is sometimes appropriate. If an anatomic source is identified, the relevant service should be consulted to intervene and eliminate the source as soon as possible. Some intervenable sources include empyemas, indwelling catheters, obstructing stones, either urinary or biliary, and mycotic aneurysms, as well as abscesses from any location, but be particularly vigilant for skin and soft tissue infection as well as intra-abdominal abscesses. The second broad category of management is antibiotics. Studies have shown that in-hospital and one-year mortality increases with every hour of delay between identification of sepsis and administration of antibiotics. Because of this, your choice of whether or not to give antibiotics when sepsis is suspected should be guided by two spectrums. How sick is your patient, 
and how likely is infection. If infection is very likely or your patient is very sick, antibiotics should be given immediately. Use the adult suspected sepsis order set to order your antibiotics as this both helps direct you to appropriate antibiotic decisions but also sets off a cascade of actions behind the scenes including paging pharmacy and a courier. While the surviving sepsis guidelines suggest antibiotics be given within one hour of recognition of sepsis, this number might be closer to four hours for some hospitalized patients, especially those with community-acquired pneumonia. While we tend to focus on the time prior to the first dose of antibiotics, there's also evidence that delays in the second dose of antibiotics beyond the recommended time interval for that medication is associated with increased mortality. If the patient is not in shock and you're not completely convinced they are septic, that surviving sepsis guidelines recommend a time-limited exploration of other causes, but antibiotics should still be started if no other explanation is found. When choosing antibiotics, you want to tailor your choice to the likely infectious source and modulate for local resistance patterns. While it's common practice at Penn to start vancomycin and cefepime in a hospitalized patient with new suspected sepsis in order to achieve MRSA, gram-negative rot, and pseudomonal coverage, the better way to guide antibiotic selection is to use the adult suspected sepsis order set or the antimicrobial treatment guidelines found on the UPHS intranet. ILM also has helpful antibiograms if you suspect a specific pathogen. Keep in mind that broader coverage is not beneficial for community-dwelling patients presenting with sepsis. If your patient is already on antibiotics and develops new or worsening sepsis, then your differential should include both lack of source control as well as antibiotic failure. If the patient is on a regimen that doesn't cover MRSA and resistant gram-negative rods, you should broaden to vancomycin and cefepime. When broadening from a regimen that includes cefepime, please keep in mind that mirapenem adds anaerobic coverage but is mainly covering for infections resistant to cefepime, such as extended-spectrum beta-lactamase producing organisms. In fact, mirapenem has worse coverage of pseudomonas in the HUP-MICU. If a patient is in danger of imminent mortality, meaning septic shock with escalating pressure requirements, double coverage of gram-negative rods with a dose of an aminoglycoside such as amicacin is often appropriate. The combination of amicacin with cefepime, mirapenem, or levofloxacin has almost 100% gram-negative rod coverage in our health system. Your patient's history is also very important here. If they're immunosuppressed, have been on TPN or a neutropenic, then consider early fungal coverage, usually with caspofungin. If they have a history of VRE, then add daptomycin as long as MRSA pneumonia is not on your differential. A history of MDRO may warrant double gram negative coverage. A quick note here on MRSA swabs. The negative MRSA swab has been shown to have a greater than 90% negative predictive value for any MRSA infection, not just MRSA pneumonia. While MRSA swabs are part of the typical admission bundles at Penn, you should send a new one if a hospitalized patient develops sepsis as there is always a risk of nosocomial MRSA infection. If the repeat MRSA swab is negative, you can often feel confident stopping MRSA coverage. However, in a patient in shock with unknown infectious source, it may be reasonable to continue vancomycin until Enterococcus faecalis is ruled out. Regarding antibiotic duration, if source control can be achieved, a shorter duration of antibiotics may be possible and continual reassessment of the need for antibiotics is preferable to fixed durations of therapy. However, many infectious sources do have accepted durations of antibiotics, and these can be found in the UPHS antibiotic guidelines. This is also a good time to bring up the appropriate use of procalcitonin. Procalcitonin should not be used to guide the initiation of antibiotics, but can be trended daily or every 48 hours, starting at the time of suspected sepsis, and used as a tool to guide antibiotic cessation. There's a UPHS pathway for procalcitonin that can be found via Penn Pathways, as well as in a link from the procalcitonin order set. There's also a great video on hutmicu.com, password penres, which will walk you through appropriate procalcitonin ordering and interpretation. 
The third broad category of management is fluids. Fluids should be given to any patient with all three of the following. Hemodynamic instability, a high likelihood of fluid responsiveness, and a low risk of volume overload from the upcoming fluids. Many guidelines include a fluid goal of 30 cc's per kilogram of ideal body weight. However, this has fallen out of favor as the true fluid need is likely individual to each patient. Time to fluid administration has not been shown to impact mortality, but fluids are often the first available intervention and there's no reason to wait if they're indicated. You should consider access as a vital sign and check immediately upon suspecting sepsis. If a patient has fewer than two peripheral IVs, then they need additional access. You should resuscitate through the largest bore IV available, remembering that short peripheral IVs have faster flow than triple lumen, central lines, or PICs. In moderate quantities, there's not a major difference between normal saline and lactated ringer. However, if giving large quantities, then lactated ringer is a more appropriate choice as there's an association between large quantities of normal saline and metabolic acidosis. Resuscitative solutions containing starches are not available in the PEN system and should not be given. The goal of fluid resuscitation is to increase tissue perfusion. A MAP of greater than 65 is often our proxy measurement, though some data suggests that a MAP goal of greater than 60 is safe in patients over 65 years old or those with lower baseline blood pressure. If possible, markers of organ function are more appropriate. These markers include urine output greater than 0.5 cc's per kilogram per hour, normalization of mental status, capillary refill less than 3 seconds, reduction in lactate if it was initially elevated, or normalization of renal and liver function on a CMP. If you are concerned for poor organ perfusion, check a VBG or ABG with lactate. If getting a VBG on the floor, order a lactic acid critical care lab through the adult sepsis and suspected infection order set so that the lactate is run from the VBG. You can also order an arterial lactic acid for an ABG. Change the frequency to once and stat. While elevated lactate is not unique to sepsis, if you have suspicion for sepsis and your patient has lactatemia, then you can guide your resuscitation to normalization of the lactate. This is notably not superior to guiding resuscitation to capillary refill, and an elevated lactate does not necessarily mean a patient will benefit from further fluids. A note here on predicting fluid responsiveness, which really could be its own pen pot. As has been discussed, an important question in fluid resuscitation is whether additional fluids will improve organ perfusion. While the details are really beyond the scope of this podcast, the best options for predicting fluid responsiveness are pulse pressure variation and passive leg raise. Ultrasound of the inferior vena cava has utility for predicting fluid tolerance, but not responsiveness. A more comprehensive algorithm for assessing fluid responsiveness can be found in the Andromeda shock trial in supplemental figure 3. Please make sure to look up the correct methods and interpretation of these tests if you intend to use them, as they are quite complex. The fourth category of management is pressors. If a patient is hypotensive or has persistent organ dysfunction after appropriate fluids, they're in septic shock, and now is the time for vasopressors. The need for vasopressors is an ICU indication in our hospitals. When starting pressors, the typical first line is norepinephrine, which can run peripherally up to 10 micrograms per minute. Don't wait for a central line before starting, but a central line should be placed as soon as feasible if you expect the pressors to be required for an extended period at high doses or if you expect the patient to require multiple pressors. If your patient has a pick or port, these are central lines and can be used for any presser. If you're starting pressors outside the ICU, a nurse coordinator is needed to manage the pressors and pharmacy will be needed to get them quickly. In many circumstances, a rapid response should be called to facilitate logistics or get additional support. CCOPS or NICO will come if a rapid response is called, but in other scenarios, they can still be contacted with any critical care questions. When starting pressors, you should place an inpatient transfer request to the appropriate ICU and call bed management to facilitate the transfer. 
The typically used pressors at HUP are norepinephrine, vasopressin, epinephrine, and phenylephrine. While norepinephrine has achieved reasonable consensus as the first pressor in septic shock, the decision on when to add a second pressor and which one to use remains controversial. In general, the clinical situation should guide you as certain pressors may have more benefits for certain patients. The most common practice at Penn for a generic patient with septic shock is to add vasopressin as the second agent, and there is some weak evidence that this reduces arrhythmias by decreasing the overall catecholamine exposure. However, vasopressin as a second agent has not been shown to have any mortality benefit when used in all comers. There are certain populations, such as patients with cirrhosis, who seem to benefit more from vasopressin. Vasopressin, unlike other pressors, cannot be administered peripherally due to the lack of a reversal agent. Patients with sepsis and cardiac dysfunction may have persistent hypoperfusion despite appropriate volume resuscitation and an acceptable MAP. These patients are maintaining their MAP through very high SVR but have low cardiac output. In these cases, epinephrine or norepinephrine plus dobutamine are reasonable as the first presser choices. Identification of this scenario is an important reason to include a focus of the heart in your workup of septic shock. Of note, we do not use dopamine for shock alone due to increased risk of arrhythmias, though it may be reasonable in a patient with septic shock accompanied by significant bradycardia. We also do not use terlipressin or angiotensin II. If your patient requires frequent titration of pressors or is difficult to get accurate blood pressures on, placing an arterial line for real-time blood pressure monitoring and ease of ABGs is appropriate. Sepsis can lead to failure of any organ system. Some of the most commonly seen manifestations include AKI, acute renal failure, acute respiratory failure, disseminated intravascular coagulation, and encephalopathy. We'll talk briefly here about acute renal failure and acute respiratory failure. Acute kidney injury is very common in sepsis and typically starts as pre-renal due to poor perfusion from hypotension and poor oxygen utilization. Renal function should be followed closely in sepsis to ensure that appropriate perfusion is maintained either via fluids or pressors. If perfusion is unable to be maintained, AKI may progress to acute tubular necrosis or acute renal failure. Indications for dialysis are the same in sepsis as they are in other conditions, with the most common being severe acidosis, in this case meaning a pH less than 7.1, severe hyperkalemia, which is usually a potassium greater than 6.5, symptomatic uremia, as evidenced by either pericarditis or encephalopathy, refractory fluid overload, or the inability to clear accumulated toxins. In patients with metabolic acidosis who are not able to receive urgent dialysis, there is a mortality benefit to bicarbonate administration if the patient has a pH less than 7.2 and a concurrent AKI. Severe acidosis, often defined as a pH of less than 7.1, will worsen hemodynamic instability due to impaired left ventricular contractility, cardiac arrhythmias, and endothelial dysfunction leading to impaired responsiveness to catecholamine pressors. The best treatment is to treat the underlying cause and arrange for dialysis if acidosis is likely to be prolonged. If dialysis is not immediately available, bicarbonate should be given to patients with a pH less than 7.1. These patients require close evaluation of their capability for respiratory compensation as the bicarbonate will be metabolized to carbon dioxide and can cause a concurrent respiratory acidosis. For this reason, most patients in this scenario will require mechanical ventilation. Regarding acute respiratory failure, Patients with sepsis frequently develop acute hypoxemic or hypercarbic respiratory failure for a number of reasons, including ARDS, pulmonary edema from volume overload, respiratory fatigue due to compensation for metabolic acidosis, or the inability to protect the airway due to encephalopathy. At this point, you've probably already gotten a chest x-ray, but if hypoxemia is a late development, then a repeat chest x-ray or lung ultrasound should be obtained when supplemental oxygen is started. If your hypoxemic patient is protecting their airway, 
start supplemental oxygen with the nasal cannula. If the hypoxemia cannot be reversed with nasal cannula, the preferred next line in most patients is high-flow nasal cannula. However, BiPAP might be more appropriate in some patients, including those with COPD or asthma, congestive heart failure and pulmonary edema, neutropenic sepsis, and potentially severe obesity. The decision on whether to mechanically ventilate a patient can be difficult. A detailed discussion of indications for mechanical ventilation is beyond the scope of this podcast, but a general approach would be that any patient who is failing to maintain adequate oxygenation or ventilation on maximal non-invasive support, any patient who is unable to protect their airway, or any patient in profound shock will require intubation if it is within their goals of care. In sepsis, the indication is often respiratory acidosis due to fatigue from compensation for severe metabolic acidosis. If a patient is started on invasive ventilation, then lung protective ventilation strategies should be utilized as the patient is at high risk of ARDS. These strategies include a tidal volume of less than 6.5 cc's per kilogram, a plateau pressure less than 30, a PaO2 goal of 55 to 80, and permissive hypercapnia with a pH goal of greater than 7.25. For septic patients, please ask the respiratory therapist to target an initial minute ventilation of 12 to 15 liters per minute. You may be able to hyperventilate the patient to compensate for metabolic acidosis while staying within appropriate lung protective parameters, but watch for auto-peep with high respiratory rates. The sixth and final category of sepsis management is steroids. Sepsis can create a state of relative adrenal insufficiency. While studies have been mixed regarding the mortality benefit of steroids and sepsis, steroids and septic shock appear to decrease the length of time spent in shock and the overall ICU length of stay. It's reasonable to start stress-dose steroids with hydrocortisone 50 mg every 6 hours for any patient with septic shock on pressors in the ICU. However, the sicker the patient, the more likely they are to benefit. The decision of whether to start steroids should not hinge on AM cortisol or ACTH stim tests. If patients are already on steroids chronically, we use 100 mg Q8 for doubling of their chronic steroid dose, whichever is greater. Now that we've talked about all six of the broad categories of sepsis management, I'll do a quick recap and leave you with some take-home points. Sepsis is a syndrome of life-threatening organ dysfunction due to dysregulated immune response to infection. SERS and QSOFA are useful but imperfect screening tools. If you suspect sepsis, start antibiotics immediately as early appropriate antibiotics have a proven mortality benefit. Use the adult suspected sepsis order set to help your antibiotic selection and to expedite their arrival. Source control is vitally important, so start an infectious workup including two sets of blood cultures, chest x-ray, urinalysis and urine culture, sputum culture, procalcitonin, MRSA swab, and a full set of labs. If you find an intervenable source, develop a plan to intervene on it. If the patient is hypotensive, check an ABG or VBG with lactate. In hypotensive patients who are likely to be fluid responsive and fluid tolerant, resuscitate with fluids to MAP greater than 65, capillary refill of less than 3 seconds, decrease in lactate, or reversal of end organ dysfunction, but assess repeatedly for fluid intolerance. If the patient remains hypotensive or with organ dysfunction after adequate fluid resuscitation, then they are in shock and need pressors and the ICU. Start with norepinephrine and tailor further pressors to the clinical scenario. Watch for end organ failure. Renal failure may require renal replacement therapy, and respiratory failure may require escalation to mechanical ventilation. Stress dose steroids are reasonable for any patient in septic shock in the ICU. Lastly, goals of care conversation should happen early as septic shock has an in-hospital mortality as high as 50%. Thank you for listening, and I hope this has been helpful.